Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to a new series of Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. January can be a bit of a gloomy month, miserable weather, dark mornings, short days, post-Christmas malaise to contend with. But at Planet Pod, we're determined to face 2023 and all its challenges with as much gusto as we can. Over the next few programmes, we're going to look at some of the practical, affordable ways to live more sustainably. However, many of you have got in touch with us to ask how some of the projects we have covered in the last three years are getting on. So we thought we would go back and have a chat to some of the many amazing people we've spoken to and see what they're up to. Whether it's the beavers in Devon or the human swan Sasha Dench, we will bring you some exciting updates, starting with our next episode when we'll pop back to Wild Ken Hill, the rewilding project in Norfolk. And of course, we will continue with our series Animal, Vegetable, Mineral, which takes a sideways look at sustainability in the environment. To kick off the series, we're going to do a bit of a stock take. What went well in 2022 and what was not so good for the environment? And what are some of the challenges we face globally in tackling climate change in 2023? My guest today is extremely well-placed to provide this oversight. Sasha Abraham is Senior Analyst for International Climate Action at the UK's Climate Change Committee, where she focuses on exploring what international climate leadership looks like for the UK assessing the impact of global shifts on our domestic decarbonisation efforts and sharing lessons from the committee's journey with countries from across the world. Sasha, welcome to Planet Pod and thanks so much for being with us to help get 2023 off to a flying start. Hi Amanda, it's lovely to be here. For listeners who aren't as familiar with the work of the Climate Change Committee, can you perhaps tell us to begin with what the committee is and, and why was it established in the first place? Absolutely, so the UK Climate Change Committee, that I will call the CCC from now on. Um, it's just <laughs> less of a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> Definitely less of a mouthful. Um, so we are an independent statutory body, and we were set up under the 2008 Climate Change Act to advise government and assess its progress on tackling climate change and preparing and adapting to the impacts of climate change. So in 2008, the government passed this Climate Change Act, which actually is a pretty impressive piece of legislation looking at it now and how it stood the test of time it really did set up this comprehensive structure for the government to take long-lasting action on climate change so what it did is it set a 2050 target which at the time was an 80 percent reduction of 1990 emissions by 2050 it then also set something out called carbon budgets which are five yearly emissions caps that will decrease over time, that basically create a pathway to that 2050 target. So it's not just setting the goal, it's also creating a path there so that things can be done in an ordered way. And doing both of those things is very complex. You know, you're talking about transitions across the whole economy and changing a lot of the things that we interact with in our everyday lives. And so they also set up the Climate Change Committee, where I work, to provide advice, independent evidence on how they should do that in a way that best fits the UK economy, best fits UK people, but also that will assess them, provide independent assessment to basically, you know, keep them in check, make sure they are sticking to what they said they do. 
that seems to me that we were kind of a bit ahead of the game there, which is <laughs> surprising for, for the UK. But I mean, not only to set quite an ambitious target around um, emissions reductions for 2050, but to give ourselves a, a mechanism for scrutiny and to hold the government to account. I'm assuming, therefore, that you are independent. You're not an arm's length government body. You're a completely independent entity with, with an ability to, to tackle the government and you know, call out the government of the day if if they're not delivering on the promises that they made. Absolutely. So we are independent. We regularly do call out the government on not taking enough action. But I think our relationship with government is really interesting because with all the teams in government that we're working with, we've got the same goal, right? Government has set these targets. They are in law. The net zero target, as you know, is in UK law. And so... Um, it's in law, yeah. So we have to all put our efforts towards making that happen. So even if sometimes we differ on our opinions on when things need to be done, how exactly they should be done, we are all working towards a common goal. So um, our reports might not always be complementary, and sometimes we do give the government a hard time on areas where we think that they are delaying, that we think they're lagging behind. But ultimately, it's to help them right? It's all to provide the evidence, the advice, the assessment that they need to, you know, secure the things that will help all of us. Mm. So it's a partnership as much as a, as a, as a kind of calling out for, for, for I would comments. like to think so. <laughs> Some government officials may not feel that way the day after we release our reports, but I think they would agree with that, hopefully. <laughs> And and am I right in thinking that some of those reports have shown that we we haven't met some of the carbon budgets that the, that the government has set out? We, we 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 failed to meet some of those targets. So we have met carbon budgets so far. So um, it's some of the future carbon budgets that are going to be very very stretching. So what we do is we both assess progress against the you know the targets for say twenty twenty one, but what we also do is look at where the government needs to be in 2030. And we say, do you have adequate policies and plans in place for those years? And in some of those later years, we have said there is not enough in place. And obviously, but with some of the transitions we're talking about, with some of the changes to things like infrastructure, there's a lot of time involved in getting those things up to scratch and built and running. So we do put pressure on the government to make sure that they are thinking about the next decade, the end of this decade, and do what they need to do to make sure that we won't miss our targets later on. And that's very encouraging to hear because with the series that we we did just you know towards the tail end of, of last year in 2022, we spent quite a lot of time looking at energy and energy infrastructure and energy policy and the impact on, on the environment of big energy projects, renewables and non-renewables. Um, and the consistent message that, that came across from many of the guests that we spoke to was that there is a lack of strategic planning, there's a lack of an energy policy, there's a lack of forethought, particularly around infrastructure, which, as you say, is, a, is quite a large-scale, long-term um, uh, project. I mean, you, you, you know, you don't build a power station overnight, you don't build transport infrastructure to service a power station or an energy supplier overnight. So, so that lack of policy was a was a recurring theme um, in terms of you know energy particularly is your sense that that we're getting a bit better at some of that medium to long-term planning because you know we're here we are in 2023 so we've got seven years to meet that that 2030 target uh, are we getting better I mean you know marks out of 10 for the government on making progress <laughs> I'm always very reluctant to give a mark but I will <laughs> say that 
the government has done some difficult thinking. So when they put out their net zero strategy, they I think in many ways that kind of planning on how you address emissions across every area of the economy is very hard to do. And I think that does represent progress in, you know, it's definitely not easy to decarbonize power, right? There are so many challenges involved with get decommissioning coal, with getting renewables up and running, but we've done really well in that. And we've seen a lot of progress on the decarbonization of electricity, but there are still gaps in things like agriculture and more action needs to be planned. And then above that, I think where we need to see progress is in delivery. I think, I guess this is, you know, my personal view is that there was so much progress around COP26, not just from the UK, but from countries across the world in target setting. And I think target setting is so important. You know, it's really formed the way we approach climate change action um, across lots of different countries. That You set a target, it sends a signal to governments elsewhere, to businesses, to people that these changes are happening. And then you both put in put policies in place and also start to see real world change that all gets moving under those targets. However, around COP26 and afterwards as well, we've seen a lot of target setting and not always much else. And as much as those targets do trickle down, they need, you know, policies, they need delivery from government to actually make them a reality. And we're in this quite difficult space at the moment of Looking at 2030, we both have very ambitious targets that a lot of governments are not currently fully set up to deliver on. You know, there's so much that needs to be done to reach the 2030 targets that have been set. And then on the other hand, we also have this knowledge that the 2030 targets that have been set aren't ambitious enough. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a gap between what's been promised and what needs to be done if we want to keep those Paris temperature goals in reach. So I think we need to see more ambition, but most importantly, we just need to get moving on them. 2030 is seven years away, which in policy terms is absolutely no time, like that's basically tomorrow. And so 2023 needs to be a a year where we are pushing out a lot of policy, we're making difficult decisions on how we will tackle problems, you know, what the policy structures will look like and what we're going to do today that will enable decarbonisation and adaptation in 2035. Mm. And it's that ability to think in that medium to long term that mm. notoriously governments of all, all shapes and sizes and all colours and flavours find really difficult, isn't it? And yeah. and I'm interested in what you said because I, uh, you know, COP, I think COP26 was really a turning point for lots of us and, and the energy. And I know you were you know, intimately involved because you worked alongside Alex Sharma as part of the team. So, and, it, and, and for many ways, it was a real high point. It was a real success, wasn't it? Lots of very, very yes, good commitments absolutely. came out. Not necessarily followed through with the most recent COP in Sharm el-Sheikh. And I know there were a number of people came away saying, well, you know, this was meant to be the delivery COP and it, it didn't in some yeah, ways. Things yeah. didn't happen. Um, is your sense, I mean, you have an international perspective, is your sense that we've stalled slightly? I mean, partly possibly because of the, you know, the, the energy crisis that was caused by, has been caused by, by, by the war in Ukraine, but, but also just because perhaps 
we put a lot of energy into COP26. We came out with a lot of statements. Governments were really geared up, but they were actually quite challenging and people have stalled in delivering them. They stalled in being able to keep that momentum going. My, I, and, and that, you know, is, is, is that your sense coming kind of looking at it from an international perspective or, or are different countries making much more progress than we're aware of? It's difficult, I think. I mean, I'm sure that there are lots of people who are slogging away all year, but I think there is a problem where we have this huge flurry of activity around COPs and there seems to be increasing every year, right? That more and more people are involved. It's not just negotiators and governments, it's businesses, activists. I mean, activists have always been involved, but, you know, people from all walks of life are congregating around these events and you know, part due to limited capacity because of all the other things that are going on in the world, part human fatigue, we then see a slump afterwards. And I think you're right in that the one after COP26 did seem slightly longer than usual. And I think one thing that I'll say is that we cannot afford to have that this year, that I think the difficulty is that what COPs really produce is intentions and agreements to do things you know it doesn't create those actual outcomes themselves because it's a big multilateral agreement um what it creates is countries coming together and saying i will do this and we will stop this happening or make this happen or come together to change the way that this goes on so that means that you know what's important is what comes after and so if we all you know take the foot off the pedal for six months after COP27, we are not going to be able to deliver on both what we need to make COP28 work, but also 2030 commitments will be out of the window. So I think as much as I think increased focus and increased pressure on the COPs themselves are good, I think that needs to translate to, you know, scrutiny of what happens afterwards. There are so many moments throughout the year in what's commonly referred to as the climate calendar, that are all super important. And I think I'm definitely very interested to see what goes on at all of these. But I think it'd be amazing if all the people who are really interested in the COP, and I'm sure so many of your listeners are, were able to access more information about what happens at these other events. We're going to have the spring annual meetings of the international financial, financial institutions, so the IMF, the World Bank. These are so important climate change because so many of the countries that are undergoing climate transitions need help from these organizations to make that happen and there were big discussions at COP27 around whether the international financial infrastructure is suitable for making that happen for delivering global climate transition and then we need to have all eyes on those meetings to see how all the countries that talked about supporting that reform actually come to those meetings and push for that reform because it relies on each of these countries exercising their global influence right to make these things happen and then there are mid-year negotiations from the UN climate body there's going to be a UN climate action summit um, which I believe will be in the autumn and that will be a really important moment it's kind of like a pledging summit so they're asking countries to come and share this big global platform and saying you can't come unless you've made a new commitment. So we did one um, before COP26 and it's basically creating a moment that puts pressure on countries to come up with something, right? We rules on how much that uh, announcement needs to 
change the world really and I think if those big events are kind of scrutinized and followed by the general public as much as cops are then I have hope that the governments that are involved in them will have a little bit more pressure on them to come up with the goods when they go so I'm yeah. going to be beating that drum as much as possible. Well, absolutely. And it's fascinating to hear you say that because it really is about those next level down um, mechanisms absolutely. for delivery. And, you know, you talked about finance and one of the outcomes from COP27 was the loss and damage fund, which is going to sort of support, you know, those communities right on the front line of climate change. But delivering on some of those commitments is really, really key. Um, could I just ask you briefly about the, the fact that the, you know, the High Court actually ruled the government's net zero um, strategy as unlawful because it didn't have enough financial provision behind it. And there is a point of review. Are you, are you confident that the money that's required to actually make that net zero strategy work will be forthcoming? Um, you know, if, if March 23 is the deadline for revision, is that, is that something that, that, you know, you and your colleagues at the that the at the CCC feel comfortable the government will step up to? So, yeah, I think the government is preparing for that additional uh, publication to put forward. Um, I think, truth be told, I think it's about um, what information has been published. And in terms of the wider point, it's a conversation that's obviously happened a lot this year in the wake of the energy crisis around whether it's moral or reasonable that we are financing net zero when obviously there is a cost of living crisis and so many households are experiencing really substantial financial hardship but I think the CCC and to be honest the UK government have been saying for a long time that net zero is going to be a financial opportunity right Mm. we can't see the UK in isolation from the rest of the world and the past year has shown us that, right? We mm. are completely exposed to global shifts, to global trends. And ultimately, the rest of the world is changing and we have an opportunity to change and be at the front of that if we want to. I can't tell you how many... Comp- I've not worked in climate change for as long as many people have, but seven, eight years ago, people were talking about becoming the UK being world leaders in some technologies, which... We've moved too slowly on, and there are other countries that are racing Mm. forward now. The UK has incredible research and technological expertise. And if we leverage that to make ourselves a kind of a green tech leader, it's just such a huge opportunity for us in terms of jobs, in terms of growth. Mm. And I think you've kind of seen with the Conservative Environment Network that there are lots of people that agree with that, right? That There are MPs who want these projects in their constituencies. There are people who want these opportunities, jobs for growth for their constituents. And I think that we don't need to think about it in a way of what the cost will be. I think we need to think about how we make sure we don't lose the opportunity. You're right. If we get the the green economy working, it will benefit everybody. And it will change the way people live their lives and hopefully improve the direct living conditions of many people because you know many many people who are struggling with cost of living crisis particularly around heating are living in we know really poorly insulated homes Absolutely. really badly built homes we don't have the opportunity to in, to improve those and, in, and and increase their insulation and bring their energy costs down so so it's in our own best interests 
for for the wealth and and health and well being of our nation as well as for the for the for the wider planetary interest to to pursue this and and you know we we spend a lot of time on the podcast talking to green entrepreneurs and investors and yeah. and, and 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 innovators and we know what a wealth of talents out there. L- let's turn very briefly to, to to the international perspective because you you you've talked a little bit about that and you've talked about you know what's come out of COP twenty twenty seven and what some of the issues are. How do you feel? I mean, can you point to a really good example where one of our international colleagues is doing it well? So there are some things that we could learn from that country or from that community. Are there any standout leaders for you? I mean, I feel like in the international world, this might be quite a cliche answer, but I think it's a cliche for a reason. Um, The Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, is, I think, a standout leader in this space. So she's both I think, in my view, like a very inspirational female leader and has such a strong voice in that community. But she's also kind of delivering action where in many ways I didn't expect to see action for a long time. So these things that we talk about, right, like reforming World Bank practices, World Bank lending practices, reforming the IMF, that is so big. Those are really chunky issues to take on. And what she's done is used her influence, worked with governments all across the world, taken on those very senior meetings. So she will very much, you know, ask see the UK Prime Minister talk to talk about these things. You know, that's how you've got to do it. And she has just gathered so much momentum on it. And really, that's how things like the Loss and Damage Fund, you know, that's how they have materialized. It's come from taking issues that people didn't even want to talk about right and really asserting that it needed to be talked about because it is of great material importance to so many countries you know Mm. if you think about you know we often think about climate impacts as this far off scary thing you know this threat of the future sadly it's not a threat of the future it's a threat of today there are countries across the world who are experiencing really severe impacts today and it's taking that knowledge and saying I'm going to force this issue into the conversation. And I think we can take lessons from how she's done that, thinking about how we do that for climate change more generally. Look, like climate change is a mainstream topic of discussion now, but we really need to f- make sure it stays there. Mm. There are so many really difficult things going on in the world today. And it's Ukraine and the energy crisis. It's also debt crises across the world. It's food crisis. And you know, we'll have to fight to keep this as a relevant issue because, you know, everyone has limited bandwidth and everyone is surrounded by Mm. so much doom and gloom. And, you know, climate change is one of those things that delay is just so difficult. Clawing back after periods of inaction is really, really hard. And, you know, I really pray that we don't have another crisis like COVID or the energy crisis or wars happening all through this decade. But, assuming that bad things will continue to happen we do need to work out how we use our voices we use our governments we use our activists to make sure that whatever is thrown at it we keep this progress going Mm, absolutely and you could argue that covid and the energy crisis are directly linked to climate change anyway actually and there's many many um some medical and scientific researchers who say that you know the rise of the zoonotic disease is a direct result of climate change and that in itself was one of the causes of covid so so i don't think anything lives in a vacuum does it climate change runs through and under and round all of 
the issues that we face as 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 a community and as a world. Um, yeah, and I think with adaptation, that is going to just become yeah so key. For those things we think about is, you know, if we don't take action today, we will reach a world where climate change is going to stop us taking action mm. on climate change. You know, our power grids, our buildings, all of these things where we're trying to be, you know, we'll be trying to reduce emissions. They are also sadly at the mercy of weather events and at mm. the mercy of rising temperatures and all those things that come with it. So you're right that there are links across all of this and we need to be aware of those. And- what, what are your kind of hopes for, for 2023? And, and, and are you, indeed, are you hopeful that, you know, given the caveats of what you've said about the fact that we mustn't delay and we need to keep keep pushing on at this, are you hopeful and do you have a kind of standout, you know, num- one or two things that you really hope that this year will will see come to fruition? So, I mean, I think on the general hope point, I get asked this quite a lot working in climate change. And I think I'm more hopeful than a lot of my friends who don't work in it. And I think that's partly because I get to spend my time surrounded by so many incredibly bright, dedicated people who are all so focused on finding solutions to this. And that's not just in the UK all over there are huge and growing communities of people who have basically dedicated their lives through whatever it is through academia policy business activism to making this work and I think I'm very heartened to see how many young people are interested in it because if we can just get more people wanting to work in climate change we've already got such a boost in terms of what I'm looking forward to I think it it makes me nervous, but it also makes me hopeful because COP28 is going to be a real test of the Paris Agreement. So it's something called the Global Stop Take, mm-hmm. and it's set, it's a set time where the whole COP process gathers round and tries to assess what has been done so far against the goals of the Paris Agreement. And I think we all know that there will be gaps, right? That is basically mm-hmm. certain. We've not done enough in mitigation, in adaptation, in climate finance. But this kind of mechanism that you assess it and then come together to work out what needs to be done to fill those gaps, that's vague, right? That is left open. But these countries all came together around the Paris Agreement. They signed up to this process. They signed up to this way of doing things. And I think if we can see a step change at COP28, if we can see a concrete plan, and it won't be immediate, but a plan in how you start to make sure we are getting closer to reaching those goals, it will prove that the Paris Agreement is working. It will prove that it can direct action towards those goals. And I'm not sitting here and telling you that it will happen. I'm saying that that's a hope of mine. Well, that's what I think everybody would echo, actually, and 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 a lot's riding on it, and probably you know, this time, in a year's time, we'll have you back and talk about whether or not we think it it worked. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and whether I, really, or, you know, I really hope that I'm not sitting here with a very sad face. <laughs> no, you won't be. You won't be. I think we, we yeah. are in the last chance saloon and I think there's a huge amount of energy and commitment to make it happen. And obviously, we'll really helpful of you. Thank you for sharing those other key events that are happening through that climate calendar and, and we'll let podcast listeners know about them and see if we can cover them on the pod as well because I think that Perfect. it's that next level down that we need where we need to see action. We've got a report uh, that the CCC published right after COP27, 
And in that, we do outline what those key moments are coming up. So I'll send you a link so that you can share it with us. Oh, brilliant. We'll definitely tweet about that and, and put it on the website as well. So thank you so much for your time. And thank you for giving us a, um, a kind of summary of, of what we've got to look forward to, as well as a bit of kind of history of where we were last year. And, and also, you know, ending today's programme on a really hopeful note. And that's, that's good. Oh, I hope that. so, Amanda. I really don't want to be doom and gloom. There is, yeah. <laughs> there is a lot to be hopeful about. The world is changing. So. There's always a lot to be hopeful about. And the very fact, as you say, that rise of young people's interest in, in, in climate change is, you know, we need them. So it, it's brilliant to know that they're there and that you're seeing them coming through too. So thank you for joining us on Planet Pod. It was delightful to talk to you. You too. Lovely to speak to you, Amanda. Bye. Planet Pod is sponsored by Akil Management Sustainability Consultancy, providing resources and support for all businesses to help them tackle their climate change challenges and work towards net zero. For more, visit akilmanagement.com. Hello, Jim. Hello, Amanda. So some things to be hopeful for in 2023, yeah. I think, from Sasha. Yeah, it's great. I, I think it's really encouraging. I think that uh, particularly coming from Sasha, who's obviously very, very close to what's going on, for the fact that she's optimistic and hopeful is, is great news, you know. Uh, I particularly liked the idea that, you know, the UK would really be taking the lead in green technology. That's which, you know, we, I know we've been talking about that for a, a while, but that's encouraging. My slight concern there is, you know, do we actually have the green skills, you know, uh, you know I mean, there's a lot of people say there's a, there's a gap in those green skills, uh, right the way down to the very, very fundamental fitting solar panels, et cetera, et cetera, you know. So mm. I just hope that we do have, you know, we're filling that gap, but um, time will tell. Yeah, um, it's a great opportunity, isn't it, to skill up you know, young people and also to help people transition from old tech into new tech. Yeah. So, you know, the, the classic of the boiler engineer will be training to be a, you know, a heat pump engineer or a solar panel installer or something. So, yeah, I mean, it's an a, as much of a challenge as it is of an opportunity, but that's yeah. always yeah. the way in Absolutely. the green space. It is indeed, yeah. So are we animal, vegetable or well, animal today? Well, uh, good question. I think we're, we're a bit of, we're not quite uh, all of them, but we, we're, we certainly hit on, on two of them, actually. One of the things I've been thinking about, you know, we all get lots of stuff at Christmas time. Well, I don't know, we may, may not all be quite so lucky, but we, we get stuff. Uh, and I know that I get lots of stuff. And I'm, I, you know, it'd be really nice to feel that you could get things which are not necessarily based on oil, you know, petrochemicals and so on. Uh, so I've been thinking about, you know, if we think about 2023 and beyond, what are some of the things which are, you know, in development that which don't rely on oil to produce them? So, you know, I've been sort of having a little scout around. So I'm going to uh, going to run through a few of these with you, Amanda. Uh, first of all, have you ever had seaweed uh, when you, as part of your takeaway, when you, if you buy a takeaway, have you, you know? Uh, possibly not as part of it. I have confessed, I have had seaweed yes. because living by the coast, yeah. you know, occasionally I get sunflower, which is a kind of seaweed. Yeah, it sort of is, isn't but it? But I yeah. don't think I've ever actually ordered seaweed. No, no. <laughs> well, well, there's a bit of a trick, trick one there. I, you know, I have takeaways. We all have takeaways, and you sort of feel very guilty, don't you, because of the packaging? You think, oh, if only this was, you know, absolutely sustainable. Some of it is, some of it's in carbon and so on. But, but you know, I mean, as regular listeners to Planet Pod will know. We talked to the team from Notplar, didn't we, a while back? Uh, and they make mm. food packaging, as we know, from seaweed. Uh, and their, their product replaces the tons and tons of plastic, uh, which is used in things like drinks cartons and food sachets and, you know, takeaway food cartons and so on. So, I mean, that's one of the really exciting things. Happened. And that was particularly exciting to, to find out that they were one of the winners of the 2022 
Earthshot Prize, if you recall. So they've had some yes. significant funding to help sort of boost their product to further develop their product. So I mean, that's that's that, to me that's a really good news story that we're replacing plastic packaging in food food applications with, with seaweed. So isn't that great? And the seaweed goes on the ins. I seem to remember the seaweed goes on the inside of the cardboard boxes that's and, right. and yep. actually forms the packaging itself. In that's the right. Little kind of yeah so okay well and you could actually eat, and you can actually eat you can you know, they have you know sachets of things like ketchup and then you can actually eat the eat the, the sachet which you know <laughs> should you wish to and so let's stick with zero waste zero waste yeah well let's stick with things that live in the sea uh, and i think another amazing development is a, is a product called squitex which may not be the best uh, name for something most attractive name for something but anyway it's and it's a fiber which is derived from from squid or, or more precisely from the protein uh, which is found in those sort of, sort of, you know, those sort of circular teeth, which are embedded in the in squids, sort of in, in those sort of suction caps in squids tentacles. If you can imagine that. Uh, I didn't it, know squid had teeth. Well, well, but yeah, well, I'm with yeah, you here. Yeah, this. Yeah, they, they do. They do. They have sort of have these, these teeth in their tentacles, and, and the fibre can be spun into a twine or sort of a, a twine-like yarn. Uh, and apparently it's strong enough to lift 3,000 times its own weight, which is pretty impressive, isn't Crikey. it? It's biodegradable, it's recyclable. So, you know, fantastic. It's a real sort of another wonder material. So, uh, And the good news is that the, the, the squid proteins artificially uh, cultivated in labs. So we're not talking about, you know, loads and loads. Oh, so we're not going into squid farming? To we're not going to squid them. farming, as, as far as I know. I mean, so this is, you know, it's it's, it's artificial produce. So they, they obviously have to take a certain amount of the squid protein uh, in order to be able to reproduce it. But, um, you know, so, I mean, that's, that's pretty exciting stuff, isn't it? You know. Now, Amanda, let me ask you another question. This is a bit of a personal question here. Do you have any Italian leather designer shoes? Oh, Jim, you... as if, as if, <laughs> as if I'd have Italian leather designer shoes. Uh, well, I, mean, I don't, you know. I don't. Uh, yeah, yeah, I might possibly lurking in the back of the wardrobe, maybe the odd pair. Yeah, well, but in, uh, in another protein-based application that's that's hit the clothing and the fashion industry is is plant-based synthetic leather. Uh, it's called Biotex, uh, and it and it gets away on the you know uh, on the reliance on or, on oil, and it combines proteins with plant-based polymers. So it produces this sort of lightweight synthetic leather, which apparently it outperforms, uh, you know, the oil, any oil-based alternative to, to, to leather, and obviously reduces greenhouse gases. And something like ninety percent reduction in greenhouse gases compared with um, traditional chrome-tanned leather. So, mm. um, and the, you know, the Italian fashion industry is absolutely saying this is great because up till now, synthetic leather has been sort of slightly lower grade, or mm. you know, it's not as flexible, it's not as colourful, it's not always color, color fast. Yeah. So. There you go. And is this biodegradable? Because I remember we did yeah. do a, a program, didn't we? We talked about the terrible waste in the clothing industry and how so many, you know, thrown away clothes just end up in horrible decomposing, but not decomposing heaps in yeah. Ghana and elsewhere. So presumably not only is this better for the planet in production, it's also therefore better at the end of its life. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a win-win in that sense, isn't it? It's a, you know, mm. and, and who knows, you know, the top uh, top end electric vehicles may well have sort of plant-based leather seats um, sometimes oh, too. that would be good, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I know, Amanda, you've got an electric car, haven't you? Electric, I have got an electric which car. Which is great yes. news. So well done. You. Doesn't have leather seats though, because obviously Doesn't... it's not top of the range. No, well, that's fine. <laughs> well, you know, we know, you know, that, as we know, there, there are no sort of tailpipe emissions from, from electric vehicles. So, but what sort of pollution do you think you might be causing when you drive around in your, in your car? Well, I was hoping I was pollution-free, oh, but I mean, wow. I don't know. There's probably, I mean, I've probably got some emissions associated with generating the energy in the first place. Yeah, well, there, there is that. But I think in terms of sort of day-to-day -day use, one of the challenges that all EVs, in fact, all vehicles, uh, you know, well, all, all vehicles with tyres, uh, road vehicles, you know, 
faced with is the sort of the microplastics which are caused by the breakdown of the tire as you you know as, as, as you oh, roll on yeah, the road. Okay. Uh, it's, a, it's a real issue. Um, you know, one of the ways of tackling that is to use more natural rubber. The challenge with that is there isn't enough natural rubber to go around. Uh, rubber trees are under threat from climate change and from from other factors. So that's a real issue that we reckon that you know in, in less than ten years the, the the natural rubber supply is going to outstrip. Or, or the demand's going to outstrip supply. But, yeah, and here, here comes a vegetable bit, uh, another vegetable bit. Uh, work in the US has actually recognised that you can use a certain type of dandelion or the resin or the sap from dandelions. If you squash the roots, you get this sap out of them. Uh, and that can be successfully incorporated into tyres, and particularly in the US, uh, US military, they're, they're incorporating it into aircraft tyres. Um, wow, so incredible so that's amazing isn't it and let's, let's flower power exactly in your tower in your tire in your tire i know and let's <laughs> let's hope that that work continues to blossom oh, oh bum, bum. <laughs> yeah Good. i mean i, I just I, I suppose the last one you know we, we're obviously to build net zero to get to net zero we're going to need high strength materials uh, alternatives to steel particularly in things like construction you know and we know that steel takes an enormous amount of energy to uh, to make uh, you know, there's all sorts of issues there. Uh, but one of the examples that I've come across is, is a product called metal wood, which kind of almost speaks for itself, really. But it's a, it's a cellulose-based cellulose based material, which is made by a process which takes out the lignin, and the lignin is a kind of like sort of the glue, if you like, in, in, in the wood, um, So it, which binds all the, the wood cells together. Uh, you take out the lignin, and then you compress the remaining fibres, uh, and the process itself gives you a, a material which is apparently 60% stronger than construction-grade steel. Uh, but 80 percent lighter, uh, and it's it's much less expensive, much more sustainable. Um, those people who have made it, uh, Metalwood, reckon that by replacing, if you replaced all the steel structural beams, columns, and connections that are around uh, with with Metalwood, you've reduced greenhouse gas emissions in the construction industry by something like thirty seven gigatons, which is is a massive amount wow. yeah, in th- over thirty year period. So it's about that's roughly equivalent to the entire emissions from the hu- from human activity for a year. So that was a fantastic. Example. Wow, how fantastic! And going back to what Sasha said, you know, so I mean, like, this is this is about you know really innovative use of of, of technology, development of technology, uh, you know, and I think it's things like that alongside a whole range of other activities that are going to help us to really achieve our net zero uh, mm. target. Let's let's hope that the, the UK can continue to to take a, ser- a serious slice of that green technology pie. I'm sure it will. And I think you've managed to cover off animal, vegetable and mineral in one slot, Jim. So I think yeah, you get, you know, sort of I'm, I'm not sure that's within the rules of the game, really. But. Uh, well, it's, it's the start, it's the start it's of 2023. It's the start of 2023. So I'm allowed to, I can write the rules. I mean, anyway, who, who makes yeah. them anyway? I mean, just come on. Exactly. Who makes the rules? Indeed. Brilliant. Thank you. Fascinating insight, as always, to what's happening at the kind of cutting edge of, of green tech. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Amanda. And and, really looking forward to the rest of the year and all of the other ones you're going to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm learning a lot. We are all learning a lot. Thank you, Planet Pod listeners, for being with us both last year and into our new year. And we hope that you'll join us when we get together next time. And in the meantime, uh, thanks for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you. So please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media. 